Welcome to KBCast, the podcast for security executives, interviewing people from around the globe on how organizations can operate smarter and stay safer. Here's Carissa Breen. I had the opportunity to catch up with Chris Sand, who is also a friend of mine, and we talked about cyber culture, what it is, what he's doing in this space, and why the dialogue towards cyber internally needs to change. We spoke about what the industry has done to start changing the conversation towards awareness and comms. If you're keen to hear how Chris is changing the way we view cyberculture, then please keep on listening. Okay, so Christopher Sant. Now, I've been wanting to talk to you, one, because you're awesome, and two, because you know your stuff. And I think it's really important that we have this chat because I, I did listen to you down in Melbourne at the conference last year, and you, you shared some really good points. And just from our chats that we've had over the last sort of 12 months or so, you've really opened up my eyes to a different way of, of looking at things. And I think that our audience would gain a lot of insight from that. So before we jump into your wonderful views on cyber, I'd like to start off just with understanding about you and your journey. So if you wouldn't mind, could you walk our listeners through your career from where you started to where you are now? Awesome. Thanks, KV. I really appreciate it. And I'm really glad to be joining you. Thank you so much for having me. So I've got an interesting journey. I guess I I started really young, actually. I mean, if I think about when I was first breaking into stuff, it probably started when I was about seven or eight years old. And uh, I remember my dad bringing home an old 286, you know, computer from work that they were throwing out because uh, they were upgraded to 386s or 486s. And um, this thing was like BIOS locked. So um, I essentially had this piece of kit in front of me and I couldn't use it. And so I managed to figure out that by opening it up and using a knife and taking out the motherboard battery, I could bypass the BIOS password, which was kind of cool. And then I could kind of play blackjack on this thing and games and stuff. And that kind of, I don't know, maybe planted a seed from a young age, uh, just in terms of me tinkering with technology. Uh, and then fast forward after university, started as a penetration tester for a big four consulting firm. That was good fun. Got to play with lots of technology, um, pull things apart, uh, try and break into things and, and whatnot. What, what I found personally, I wasn't really the most technical person in the room. So I, I kind of found myself not struggling, but you know, always trying to work extra hard to keep up with the more technical guys that seem to have just got it. But my forte was always in kind of writing reports really clearly or explaining to our clients you know, how we'd break into them and, and what we did and how they could remediate. So I kind of started... Um, moving in that direction a little bit. So uh, from there, moved into security operations and then about another five years of risk management and then a few other sort of cyber management roles. And then kind of fast forward 15 years, I was looking after a cyber culture and engagement education program for Australia's largest life insurer. So had a bit of a diverse journey, started very technical, but then moved into the more human element of cyber through that journey. So talk to me about cyber culture. Now, it's a word that I've heard uh, yourself use, but other people in the industry. Can you talk a little bit more specifically on what that might mean and what sort of happens when you talk about cyber culture for someone who may not be familiar with that phraseology? So I guess um, there's a lot of different ways you could explain it. But the way that kind of comes to mind for me is there's a very big difference between people having an awareness about something and people actually doing something, right? So People can be aware um, that smoking is bad, but you only have to walk to a hospital anywhere in the world and you'll see like five or six patients out the front, maybe even a couple of doctors um, smoking on a couple of cigarettes, right? So people can be aware of something, but doesn't mean you're going to change behavior. 
So if we use that same mantra for cybersecurity, um, people can be aware that by clicking on links or, um, you know, insecure cyber hygiene behaviors uh, can open them up to risk. It doesn't necessarily mean they're going to do it. So for me, cyber culture is about winning the hearts and minds of your employees so that they actually care about cybersecurity, um, both from a personal and a professional perspective, and then they will bring up the baseline uh, for your organization. That's kind of how I would define cyber culture, if that makes sense. Do you think that's only sort of being implemented at the large sort of enterprise level in terms of cyber culture? Because that's where I've predominantly seen a lot of it. I haven't really seen it in small to medium-sized businesses. What's your thoughts on that? I absolutely agree. So if you look at the teams, like even locally in Australia that have these these kind of capabilities, um, they're quite mature. Like, you know, the banks have had teams in this space since I think even when I was working for one of the banks back in 2012, you know, they had a team um, that was already established, you know, in cyber awareness, that kind of thing, which has now moved into cyber culture. And that's the very much the big um, part of town or the bigger companies, whereas small to medium sized businesses haven't really had that uh, ability to um, keep pace and do that because they're probably not, well, not probably, they're not as well resourced, right? So it's hard for them to have that investment to have, you know, two or three people sitting there on the bench running fishing exercises, educating staff because they haven't had that critical mass. So I think there's definitely room to for those parts of the industry to move, if that makes sense. Do you think that perhaps they could uh, leverage partners to do that? I mean, there are a lot of companies out there that do cybersecurity awareness, training, all that type of stuff. They do licensing for this. Haven't really seen a lot of cultural side of things, and maybe that's hard to integrate because you'd really need to understand the organization to be able to do that effectively and perhaps even sitting in that organization. But do you think there could be a potential model that could work because people don't have necessarily three people sitting around doing that and potentially the funds to do that? But if they leveraged a partner or a third party to be able to do that for them, they could probably get it at a third of the cost and still get the same type of outcome. Is that a fair assumption? No, def- definitely. And and it's pretty exciting too, because I've seen a number of startups, even in the last six months that have grown quite well in this space, um, you know, that have received government funding or they're kicking off their programs of work to really help small to medium sized businesses with this journey. Mm-hmm. You know, various companies that have gone off and created like a panel or a portal that their uh, companies can pay a subscription fee for and then, you know, do cyber risk assessments to understand whether they need cyber insurance or that kind of thing. So I think that's um, a really positive thing. And, and as well, leveraging free material. So I'm a very big um, advocate for using things that are already, no point in reinventing the wheel, right? You might as well use what's already around. So I think the Office of the eSafety Commissioner here in Australia has done some amazing work, uh, especially in the last 12 to 18 months, to create, I guess you could say, frameworks or education or materials that small to medium and even large-sized companies can just pick up and drop in and, and help educate their staff. So um, I think there's definitely um, some inroads that have been made in that space. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So speaking of free material, I know that you, well, I was personally there with you uh, at the SIT Summit last year in Melbourne in November, and you did an awesome job on your presentation. So uh, I, I really, well, you did. I think it was it was humanized and it was not, it didn't feel fabricated. And I really like that approach. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on the show to really talk through that. So can you just probably provide everyone a high level summary to those who may have missed your presentation about what you spoke about? Yeah, sure. Um, and I'm glad that you got something out of it. That's, that's awesome. Um, so basically at the presentation, we kind of talked about the journey that we had been on uh, in the previous company I was working in, uh, where we pretty much, we called it starting from zero. 
because uh, essentially we were building a cyber culture from zero. So we started our journey, you know, about two and a half thousand staff across Australia and multiple geographic locations around the world. How did we go from a tick the box compliance mentality of everyone doing their cyber training once a year because they absolutely had to from going from that as a starting point to winning the hearts and minds, running fishing simulations, making training interesting and engaging and getting people involved. So uh, we did a few things. Um, it was a kind of two or three pronged approach. So the first thing that we did was we, we moved as far away from tick the box training as we could. So that meant actually getting the old PowerPoint deck out, you know, putting some YouTube um, videos together of DEF CON hacks and stuff and actually going and showing stuff what these things look like, uh, what does ransomware look like, what does what does online grooming look like for parents and children and stuff so they could protect their kids uh, when they're on their iPad. So humanizing it. So we actually did a road show and we ended up, it kind of went a little bit viral, I guess. Um, I knew that because we had people who missed it and they were chasing me to do the training, which was always a good sign. So we did that road show for the whole company and everyone did like a one hour kind of module with me, which was great. And then from there, what we kind of decided was, okay, you know, we need to leverage and um, automate wherever we could. So what we did was I, I spent about three months with a couple of grads in our team, which was great. And we um, pulled together all of the resources, the policies, you know, any information about cyber that we had in the company. And we kind of put that onto an online portal and we called that the, uh, the cyber hub. And in effect, what we were able to do there was create like a kind of one-stop shop self-service area for all the um, organization's employees. And then, so we had about 15 or 16 different types of cyber help you could get, right? So you could report a phishing email, report a social engineering call, you know, uh, report suspicious behavior on your computer, whatever type of tickets. So what we did was we put a, a wrapper around that and kind of um, simplified that reporting process. Uh, and that was really good. And then after we had all that set up, we then went out to the business and said, hey, guys, why don't we get, I guess you could say, we called them cyber champions and a few other companies have done this. Uh, we actually got the idea from uh, NAB, one of the large banks here in Australia. And we actually went out to the business and said, okay, guys, give us a representative from each of your teams and we'll actually double down and give them a bit of extra love and a bit of extra cyber training so that person can kind of be like a mini me for those teams. So, and that was, that was a game changer, to be honest, because, you know, for a size of about two and a half thousand staff, it's very hard for me to provide one-on-one -on -one service with that many people. Mm -hmm. But if I could provide that service with the representative from those teams, we had about 96 champions through the business. Wow. Um, and that was, yeah. And so the ratio then changes from one to two and a half thousand to, you know, 96 out of two and a half thousand, which is much, much better odds, right? And mm. so even just from an engagement perspective, you know, if I'm dealing with the marketing team, rather than me have to go preach to the marketing team, if, you know, Sally, the extroverted graduate who's really into tech and really into marketing, I trained her and then she would then disseminate the information I'd give her to her team. It became a kind of train the trainer type situation. And we just found engagement really improved heap, you know, time to report phishing emails was shortened. You know, anytime there was scam phone calls to the business, uh, we'd get reports much, much quicker. So we were able to demonstrate to our, to our leadership team that we we're actually improving the cyber culture just by doing this champion program. So that was a really good approach for us. And then what happened was because we invested in summarizing those materials on the intranet, whenever those champions needed help, over time, they stopped asking me and they started going to the self-help portal and then pulling those materials and helping their teams. So it actually was a bit of like a cyber culture economy, you could kind of call it, and it worked really well. So that was a good experience for us. 
You spoke earlier about removing the whole uh, tick box of security awareness training. What what does that traditional security awareness sort of training look like from your perspective? Pretty much anything that makes people sleep or eyeballs bleed, I would put into that tick box uh, training testing. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? So and most of them, in other words. Pretty much, yeah. And, and I was listening to another episode of your podcast earlier, and, and I think you guys touched on this with Bastion, where you know you guys were talking about if, as a security professional, if you have to do the training and you find it boring, how would you find it from the perspective of someone who's not in cyber, right? Mm-hmm. So I used um, to I fail them. Quite- Exactly. Because I didn't listen. I was like, uh, I don't care because I used to come up as the non-compliant person. I'm not doing the training. They're like, all right, you got to do the training now. But I just, I used to click whatever. And sometimes I get it right because I wasn't listening to it because I wasn't engaged with it. And I found it boring and it was banal. And I frankly didn't care. 100%. And, and so I think there's two. Or and I was in security. Exactly, right? From memory, you started as a pretty technical person doing penetration testing type stuff, right? So you're in a space where you would understand the subject matter. It's not a matter of not understanding it. It's just a matter of not being engaged, right? So anyway, long story short, the the training, to answer your question in a long roundabout way, pretty much anything that's disengaging, so the tick the box type stuff, you know, usually it's very heavy American accents of modules of, you know, American education companies that have just kind of, you know, put a module together and ask people to go next, next, next on. And I found sometimes doing those training courses in various companies I've worked for, sometimes the answers are wrong. Like you'll actually answer it and and they'll ask you a question about privacy principles or about, I don't know, breaches or about what you should do or who you should contact. And as a professional, we'll answer it and and you'll be told it's wrong. Like, you know, I've never got 100% on those of those quizzes because really? our perspective is always yeah, hundred percent. Our perspectives are always different. You know, they'll usually include a question that asks something about, you know, who should be the first person you should report something to, and it'll say something like, you know, report it to the help desk, or report it to the cyber manager, or report it to your manager. Like three of those could be correct. You know, so no wonder people are confused because we're giving them crap training. So when we kind of moved away from that a little bit and started engaging with people in a face-to-face scenario, it's kind of probably the reason why the training went a little bit viral was because people hadn't been engaged like that before. And so they were very engaged when we did. But this is still what gets me, right? Like, I mean, like I was working in cyber. Yes, I was in trouble because I wasn't compliant with the training, didn't care. I was in cyber and people know that it's boring. And yet they keep buying these off-the-shelf licenses for the cybersecurity training programs, deploying it to 50,000-seat company. And then people are complaining that they don't get it. It's boring. Like, who cares? It's very, it's cheesy. Comes across so yeah. awkward and it's cringe. And I'm like, I cannot believe someone's developed this. And, but the thing is, like, why hasn't anyone actually done anything about it? Everyone's just been like, oh, well, it is what it is. And let's just keep doing the same thing. And to be honest, if you're paying $80 for a license, it's quite an expensive type of service that people are still buying at the end of the day, but aren't really getting a lot of value out of it. So what would be your response to people who potentially are sitting there listening to this going, oh my gosh, I really understand what these two guys are going on about because I feel like I'm in that position. Why isn't anyone really moving the needle when it comes to this? I think what, yeah, that's a great question. What I found personally was that sometimes it's very easy to be like, oh, this is what we have. So this is what we use. So therefore don't change it if it's not broken kind of thing. You know what I mean? So, Mm. you know, the training that people have in place may not have been updated for five or 10 or 12 years. And so, but then it's not relevant. Exactly. I'm not singling out any one organization. I'm talking more generally here, but I've seen a lot of different organizations have very old training that, you know, has a very thick UK or very thick American accent overlaid with some slides that move around and, you know, it doesn't really work. So what I did was I went to market and I actually demoed 
probably about 12 different solutions and kind of felt like, well, if I pay 50 or 80 or $100,000 or whatever for these licenses, I don't really feel like it's going to be anything significantly better than what's around. Now, this was 18 months ago, mind you. And so I kind of decided to you know, DIY it and, and that worked for us. But since then, I think the needle has moved. So I have seen a bunch of providers that have come to market with more engaging type options. So, you know, I saw one provider they did like, a, you know, you put yourself in a hacker's shoes and pretend to, you know, gamification type stuff. And so, you know, you kind of have like a red team, blue team between, you know, maybe the marketing and the IT team or something, and they try and hack each other. I've seen a vendor do that. I've seen, you know, some stuff around escape rooms, which is kind of cool. So I think there are vendors coming onto the market now that are doing things a little bit differently. My suggestion to people would be go out there, ask for a free demo, ask for a free trial. Don't just have your cyber grad, you know, do the demo, pick a selection of people. So get someone from marketing, from finance, from from people in culture, HR, and, and actually get them involved in the process and, and make sure that whatever language or whatever solution you pick and want to actually pay your hard-earned dollars for, make sure that everyone is comfortable that this reflects how you want to engage and teach people in your company and then move forward on that basis. That would be the best advice I could give you. Well, I think it's a really interesting point because, like I said, I've been at the cold face of doing these trainings and I just kind of thought, is this really it? Is this as good as it gets? And I think that what, what I think there's a disconnect and keen to hear your thoughts is uh, I think one of the guys at the SIT Summit raised this point that the people developing this training should probably not be security people or probably the people that understand people at the end of the day, because a lot of this training is probably not even meant for security people. It's actually meant for people who don't even know that security exists right within the organization. It's it's really meant for those people. And yet we've got people out there that are from a technical background trying to tailor these types of programs to people. And then they're really missing the mark. Like I said, a lot of it comes across really cringe and it's so awkward to sit there and be like, I cannot believe someone actually developed something. And then as a result of that, people aren't doing what you're saying. They're not even listening to it because they probably, it's probably just in one ear at the other. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think that there's a couple of different parts to unpack there, right? The first thing is that there's no one size fits all approach. So yeah. that means that as, as an educator, I can't just, you know, you can't just put a PowerPoint slide deck together and give the same pack to marketing, the same pack to IT, the same pack to developers, because the level of engagement and interest and technical aptitude is different for all those teams. So if you mm. go to the marketing team with a, a pack and they'll think that it's the best cyber training ever, but then you go try and deliver that same pack to the development team, it's like you're teaching them how to suck eggs. You, you can't do that, right? So you need to kind of understand your audience. And, and so, you know, when I've done this in the past, for example, I've actually sat in with like the team leader before actually talking to the team, but okay, what are some of the things you want to get out of this? What, what are some of the concerns you have with the team? What, you know, are you worried about data loss? Are you worried about scams? Are, you know, what are you concerned about? And tailor it. And then if the people that you're talking to already know these things, teach them in a different way. So don't try and teach developers about, I don't know, granny scams or something like that, or, you know, um, you know, <laughs> where, you, know, you, know I mean? you know what I mean? Where the, where the Telstra operative calls and says, Hey, you know, your computer's been hacked and stuff like, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's no point. There's no point showing them that six minute video because I know that it's not going to get the engagement. Whereas if I show the right team, that same video, they'll think that I'm David Copperfield or something, showing them something amazing they've never seen before. 
right? But doesn't that sound right. obvious? Doesn't that seem obvious that people would segment their audience? People care about different things, like Sally and Finance doesn't care about perhaps what Joanne and HR think. So I think Absolutely. that to me seems obvious, though, and yet people have failed to do it. And then they complain that no one actually gets what's going on. But hang on, they haven't actually developed something that people are going to want to digest in the first place. So the onus is back on us as an industry. Absolutely. And then I'll go back to my previous point saying, go back and really carefully evaluate these solutions so that the solution that you pick for education can give you some level of customization so that, you know, you're not dragging people through training that they're ticking a box just for the sake of it. You know what I mean? Mm, so Yes, I do. <laughs> none of those off-the-shelf solutions, or I would say probably 80% of them at least, can't give you that level of granularity to say, hey, these are the IT guys, take this module out and put this one in. They don't do that. The vast majority of companies just give everyone the same 11-minute slide deck and ask them to go next, next, next and do an eight-question mm-hmm. quiz, which they're probably copying the answers from the local intranet uh, or they're probably copying answers from the network drive. You know what I mean? Like that's just how it's done. And I, and I think people are moving away from that. It's just a matter of what fits best for each organisation. Well, it is. I just think that for, for as long as like I've been doing these trainings, it's just kind of like this isn't working. Why do we keep, I don't know, like just doing the same stuff? Like it just perplexes me that if something's not working, then do something else. This is not good. And everyone around me that is doing this says the same thing that I'm saying, and yet we're forced into doing it. And that's a big reason why I didn't want to do it. And I failed it on purpose to send a message to be like, whoever the hell's looking after this needs to do something about it because this is terrible. Exactly. And you know, it's funny, the common theme between every audience of everyone who I've, I've educated in, in cybersecurity has been that personal element. So whether mm. they're a developer, whether they're Sally from finance or Danielle from people and culture, whatever, that's that's fine, but what's common between them is they all have elderly parents, or they all have young kids, or they they all, everyone has a story. You know, my mum's uncle's sister's dog had his Facebook account hacked, or something, right? And so, what I kind of realised after a few months of doing this was, as much as I could, bringing things back to that whole, I'm going to help educate you personally about how to be cyber safe and how to kind of keep your account secure you know, how to set up 2FA on your Facebook account, that kind of thing. Um, mm. As much as I moved away from that corporate spiel and moved towards that personal element, um, I found engagement went up for everyone. It didn't matter what team they were in. So we kind of went with an approach where we kind of, you know, did 70% personal stuff and then 20 or 30% work-related, you know, kind of phishing 101 type of thing. And engagement just went up organically. And then those same people were then coming to me after the presentation saying, oh, hey, do you mind explaining to me how I can secure my kid's iPad from apps? Or can you tell me whether my son should be using Roblox or not? Do you think that's secure? And so it's just about, and that goes back to your first question about what is culture. When your employees start engaging with your security team, asking for help and asking for guidance on these personal matters, you'll find organically that they're going to be the first ones clicking report fish when something dodgy lands in the inbox just because you've got their heart and mind. Um, mm. that, that's what I've found personally. So that's, that's the common ground that we need to be. And I think a lot of people have recognized this, that personal approach is kind of pretty well understood as being the best way to engage with people at this point in time. So where do you sort of believe companies need to focus when it comes to cyberculture? Um, I think starting simple. So not over baking things, um, not forcing phishing simulations down employees' throats, Everyone knows, right, it's pretty standard now that 90% of cyber attacks or breaches start with a person, right? Whether it's in a social engineering call, phishing email, an attachment, it's a person. And so that's 
pretty well understood. The problem is that our approach as an industry has been, okay, let's just run a monthly phishing simulation for a DHL Express email and then we're safe. And then, you know, we'll just take those numbers and report them to the board and report them to management. And as long as it's below 5%, we're okay. I think we need to think a bit more about how we engage with these different groups and what is appropriate. You know, even now, there's been a lot of discussion about coronavirus and, okay, should we do coronavirus phishing simulation is now too soon and trying to find that balance between, yes, it's a, it's a valid attack, but no, it's probably not the best way to engage with your staff. So I think humanizing our approach to cyber and actually considering our employees' feelings for a change and, and how they want to be engaged, I think is a good way to start thinking about this problem personally. What do you mean by overbaking? You said that you mentioned that earlier, like let's not overbake this sort of approach. What can you mean specifically when you say that? Okay, so for example, when I went to go pull that cyber hub together, right, of like various mm-hmm. materials and trying to make the one-stop shop, the biggest problem I had was that I was drinking from a fire hose of data and then trying to rehash that to our employees. If you asked me, take someone who doesn't know anything about cybersecurity and teach them everything that they need to know to be secure, unfortunately, it's such a wide gamut of data to convey to them. You know, they're going to be drinking from the fire hose. It's not going to be an A4 sheet of paper they're going to be reading from, right? So the biggest problem we had was how do we not overbake it? How do we simplify and bring it down to just key principles around emails, around secure phone calls, around, you know, the simple cyber behaviors that people should do. And so when a company has a 200-page security policy, you know, I think they should be thinking long and hard about whether or not they've overbaked their list of requirements for their employees. And and can they simplify things in a way that the majority of their three, four, 10,000 staff can adhere to? That's kind of what I'm going with that. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so can you sort of just uh, maybe articulate uh, a few ways that you did do that in terms of simplifying it? You said humanizing the message and segmenting the audience. Was there anything else you sort of did to make sure that reading a 200-page report like that even wants to make me fall asleep when I hear that? Yeah, uh, I think I've, I've fallen asleep a few times reviewing some of those policies in my career. <laughs> um, haven't we all right? If you ask people honestly who's read the whole security policy, I think there's a lot of companies where even the CISOs haven't read their own security policy, let alone staff being asked to adhere to them, to be honest with you. So don't so you think it's fair we, then? Don't you think it's well, fair yeah, that people aren't adhering to it? Because like, who the hell wants to read that? If the CISO is not reading it, then a dad and anyone else is going to do it. 100%. I mean, you know, if we have policies that aren't even – they're made in such a way that people can't comply with. And, you know, you're just going to ask people to get a policy exemption every 12 months and go next, next, <laughs> next, and just apply for the annual policy exemption. What That policy, what, what's the point of that policy, right? You need to be thinking about that. One of the things that we did in the last organization I was at, which was really valuable, we had a cyber policy, but we then boiled it down to a cyber charter. So in effect, um, we had like a top five things that people should do for cybersecurity. We had a top five cyber behaviors and we thought, okay, if people do this top five, they're going to meet like 80% of our policy. That's a much better position than we're in now. So we'll just go with that. So the cyber charter said, okay, number one, think before you click, right? Pretty simple. Number two was think before you send. Uh, number three was um, be respectful online. Number four was just keep your dev- devices and files secure. And then number five was report anything suspicious. So I think it doesn't matter what organization, any organization, if their staff did those five things, they would be well on their way to a better baseline. Um, and then people are like, oh, I can do that. that. That's cool. Yeah, I can I can do the cyber thing. Yeah, cool. And then that just changed the conversation and dynamic. And, and that was, we found that really good. 
I'm going to have to ask you, Chris. So what is the point in having a policy if it's going to be exempted anyway? That's a really, really good question. Um, so in a lot, in a, in a lot of instances I've seen before, a policy is there because it has to be either a regulatory requirement forces it to be, or you know, it might be part of an audit finding, or there, there could be some pre-existing you know reason why um, that policy requirement is there. And yes, you know, sometimes you do need to have things there that exceptions need to be made. But I'm probably speaking out of school here because I'm, I'm not really a policy guy by trade, at least haven't been for a while. But I, I would say there's probably not a lot of point of having something there if you know your users can't comply with it. If that is the case, though, I think you should be very transparent with your leadership team about the fact that, hey, you know, we're putting a policy in place that we know we're not going to comply with on day one, but we have a roadmap in place that over time, you know, we're going to comply with it by implementing these controls and this and this and this, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you have a policy, if you have a policy requirement that says, I don't know, you know, all, all servers, all databases need to be encrypted. And then you look at your fleet and you're like, okay, we put the policy in place, but only 20% are, then obviously you need to think long and hard about what you're going to do to bridge that gap, right? Mm-hmm. And then what happens? Do people bridge the gap? Well, it, it depends on the appetite of the organization. So sure. some of the more mature places that I've worked in have absolutely, you know, when their management or leadership team and their boards are, you know, finger on the pulse, wanting to know where are our gaps, you know, what do we need to do? Those those are the organizations that absolutely have are on a journey to be more cyber secure. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas some other organizations that I've seen, they have their, as long as they're ticking the box, as long as the compliance requirement or the annual policy thing is ticked every year, they've probably got a more disjointed uh, arrangement in place and okay. um, aren't quite meeting the mark. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It just depends on the maturity of the organization. Fortunately, um, very many of the financial services organizations in Australia now, because we're so tightly controlled, um, you know, various APRA requirements, et cetera, they can't be operating like that, especially with the new APRA CPS 234 requirements. There's definitely need for people to be having, you know, robust cyber programs in place, knowing where their data is, knowing it's secured, making sure that their boards understand what their roles and obligations are and responsibilities and that their people actually have an understanding of how to keep data secure, which is where the cyber mm-hmm. culture stuff comes in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So, so talk to me. So w- what were some of your key insights that you learned by building out cyber programs within enterprises that people can learn from? Okay. So I think people are key and you've got to understand that. Um, how do I say this? You have to, you know, we sort of talked about not over baking and then going and simplifying stuff. So, so start mm-hmm. with the person and think about how they want to be engaged and, and put yourself in their shoes. So, you know, there's no point you going and preaching to, I don't know, like the finance team saying, oh, you know, you can't send data, has to be encrypted, blah, blah, blah. But then you don't factor in that, okay, they have a daily process, they have feeds, they have people they need to email, they have, you know, third-party suppliers that have spreadsheets flying back and forth. If you don't put yourself in their shoes and just come in and preaching, in my experience, you're not going to get very far. So I, I think before you do anything, educating, engaging, whatever, you really need to consult with those business teams and make sure that what you're giving them and, and what you're giving them in terms of constraints is actually doable, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. That's probably one of the first things that comes to mind. Um, second thing, Second thing I would say is, be really clear about what, when when you don't understand something. So, you know, I think we've all been in this position before, but you're on a long conference call, everyone's talking about a solution or something that needs to be implemented, cyber-related. You know, probably 50% of the people probably only understand 70% of what's going on. It's actually okay not to know everything. <laughs> yeah, well, 
it's hard. Like it's so broad, right? Like no one knows everything. People who claim they do, exactly. I'd be suspicious of that. Like I don't know a lot about certain areas like identity and access management, but other people do. I don't know. Why do you think people don't really come forward? Because they probably feel vulnerable that, oh, I don't know everything. And maybe this Chris Sank guy knows everything on the call. I guarantee you Chris doesn't know everything, but I'm usually the first guy to sort of put it out there on a, on a call saying, hey, guys, do you mind just repeating that for me in English because I have no idea what you just talked about? And, that, that you know, usually people kind of laugh that off and, and kind of rehash it. But I think it's okay to be that guy on the call. Um, mm-hmm. If you don't understand something, if you're running a phishing simulation and you're not clear about the simulation, you're not clear about what you're getting out of it, if you're implementing something and you're not clear then how are the end users supposed to be clear about what's happening to them or how are the management team going to be clear? Like as practitioners, unless we're crystal clear about what our intentions are and what we're trying to do, I think you should be pressing pause there. So that that's kind of my, my mentality about things. I'm always happy to kind of put my hand up and say, hey, I don't understand what's going on here. Let's, let's rehash this or simplify it. Um, people should definitely do that more because I think you, you hit the nail on the head before. People feel vulnerable that, oh, I'm supposed to be an expert. If I say something, they're going to, you know, I'm going to be the person in the room who doesn't get it I think we have to kind of remove that fear because it doesn't help anyone mm, no you're so right so I think and I guess when you do sort of raise your hand and say I don't really understand that perhaps like the next 10 people like well thank god he said it because I was in the same boat as him and I don't get it because <laughs> I know it's happened you, to you know, before 100% 100% and you'd be surprised that how many I don't know if it's happened to you but you know, you ask the question and you're like, okay, what's this mean or what's to go with this or how are we going to implement this without impacting users or whatever the question is? And then you'll get two or three other people chime in with like a supplementary question. Um, yeah, and, and I you guess just I wasn't kind of, afraid though. I, always, I just used to say it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? But what I'm saying is it kind of leads the way for other people to kind of ask something too. And I think it's probably actually, I haven't really considered this before actually talking to you about this, but when we talk about building strong cyber cultures, we're always thinking about building cultures with our employees as the end users who aren't in the cyber team. Mm. But, you know, talking to you about this a bit more, I'm sort of thinking about it. I think it's important. We also look inwards at ourselves and, and, you know, eat our own dog food and think about, okay, are we building a strong cyber team within our cyber team? You know, a strong culture within our cyber team, you know, um, and that's probably something that a lot of organizations can probably improve too is how they engage internally which will then improve um, how they engage externally. And especially now with this whole coronavirus thing, everyone's working from home, you know, organisations and their teams need to be really well-oiled machines. There's not a lot of appetite or, or room to, to get things wrong. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, if you see teams collaborating really well on Slack and doing Zoom calls and engaging and, you know, that's the kind of stuff that you need to kind of get things through, especially when you're working with remote teams. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'd probably say that's important. I'm probably rambling a little bit, but um, I think it's all important, right? Mm-hmm. No, definitely. I mean, in my opinion, it, appear, it appears that the industry is sort of responding more to the importance around cybercoms and awareness. Why do you believe this has been the, the case? Because it, to some degree, it kind of feels in the last two years specifically, it's sort of emerged to the, on the front line. But before it was kind of just, oh, well, no one really cares about that. Like what do you think's really changed? Probably, um, that's a really good point. I think the fact that compliance uh, or tick the box or, you know, whatever you want to call it, doesn't necessarily mean you're secure. So a lot of these big breaches that have happened have happened to organizations that have been PCI compliant or, you know, they've had, they've had firewalls, they've had WAPs, they've had all the technology, but they were still breached because, you know, they had an employee social engineered. So I think it's probably important to recognize that. And, and I think as a market, we recognize that. Um, and that's why now big companies have figured out, okay, their people are there. 
greatest asset in terms of cyber defense. So that's why you've seen such a vast uplift in, in that capability. That's that's my personal view anyway. Do you also think that maybe we've got more and more people sort of popping up talking about cyber and doing it in their way? How I would talk about cyber is different to perhaps you may talk about it. Do you think that people are Absolutely. sort of understanding from different types of people on what that means and what resonates with them perhaps? Absolutely. And um, I think a really good uh, way of demonstrating that was, you know, when we went to the SIT conference, uh, the Security Influence and Trust Conference, I think it was November last year from memory, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the great speakers and a lot of the panels and practitioners weren't hardcore cyber dudes in hoodies. They were actually amazing uh, females who work in comms or marketing or different backgrounds that have transitioned um, into like, you know, cyber type comms or cyber marketing or you know, those kinds of things. And they've been able to add their flair and perspective and different ways of communicating. And, and I think that's really refreshed the conversation because it's typically been a very technical and very dry topic. And mm-hmm. then having all these fresh set of minds and fresh set of perspectives coming along has changed it. And I, and I think it's added a really good dynamic to our industry personally. And I'm learning a lot from working with these people. So, you know, that's another thing. On the journey that we just went on with cyber culture for the large company I was working with, partnering with the comms and the marketing and the brand team to make sure that the language we were using wasn't conflicting with the language they were using and that the timing of our messages wasn't conflicting with the timing of their messages. You know, this is all really important to be considered. So I don't think we can think about cyber as just a siloed thing that needs to be communicated. I think it needs to be kind of dovetailed into other messages so that it becomes part of BAU rather than part of just cyber agenda, if that makes sense. Yes, of course. And when you spoke before about different people from different backgrounds at the SIT Summit talking about their experience and their opinions, do you think other people in industry who who are perhaps the technical guys, been doing it 20, 30 years, how do you think they've sort of adopted to these new sort of players coming up the ranks? How do you reckon they feel about these people? Do you think they're sort of taking well to these people or do you not really think that's the case? That's a good question. I'd be kind of speculating there, actually. I haven't really spoken to anyone about that particularly, but I think that we're pretty lucky with cyber that we're all pretty well-inclusive bunch of people. Like, you know, even this last two weeks, you know, just reaching out on LinkedIn, talking to people, I've had, you know, every second day a a video conference with someone from a different part of the world. Everyone's pretty inclusive and helpful. I mean, I'm probably speculating, but I don't think there'd be a lot of objection to that new, fresh, young perspectives coming through because it's pretty well understood that we need different perspectives and collaboration to tackle this, this problem that we have. Well, I guess anyone who's anyone would think that that's the way we've got to look at it. So my last question for you, Chris, would be what are your top three key takeaways people can implement into their organizations after this interview? So, okay, top three things I would say would be don't be afraid to start from scratch like we did. Take a long, hard look at how you're engaging with your employees and think about whether that's working and don't be afraid to pull the eraser out and start again because the short-term pain of building up a new engagement program is well worth it. The second thing I would say is try and humanize things as much as possible. So, you know, recognizing the fact that we're all humans, we all use email, a lot of us have kids or family members who may be vulnerable, like older people, et cetera. So trying to humanize it so that your messaging isn't just so technical. And the third thing I would say is collaborate and reach out. On our journey, we were so fortunate that we had some great business partners who were customers of ours and organizational partners. We partnered with them to build a lot of this stuff. Whenever we implemented something, we shared it with them. And whenever they implemented something, they shared it with us. So, you know, that's why most of the materials from SIT, we white labeled 
because we wanted to share with as many people as possible. So if anyone wants any of that stuff, feel free to reach out. I can pass it on. So I think sharing really is caring. So if you build something and you think it's useful to your partners or even your customers or maybe even your competitors, I mean, whatever, share it. The Gary V sharing model. I, I think that's really important. That's probably my top three. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Chris, thank you so much for your time and your knowledge and your experience and your honesty. And it's something that I think we need more of in this industry. So if people were to reach out to you because they're curious or they want to perhaps ask you a question that I didn't ask you, how can they go about doing that? Cool. Yeah, you can ping me on LinkedIn, uh, Christopher Sant, uh, or you can uh, flip me an email, chris at clearviewcyber.com. Happy to chat. No problem. Well, thanks again, Chris. I really, really appreciate it. And I look forward to doing this again soon. Thank you so much, KB. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in. As always, we hope you got some new ideas or ways of thinking from this episode. And remember, you can always reach out to our guests if you do have more questions. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And we always love to hear your feedback. So leave a review on iTunes and we might just give you a shout out on a future episode. You can find me on LinkedIn as well as on at I am Carissa Breen on Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to know more about how we help tech companies, check out carissabreenindustries.com. Until next time, stay safer.